Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. This podcast is sponsored by Cineverse Rentals. My name is Ian Stasikevich, and I'm a contributing writer for American Cinematographer Magazine. In this episode, cinematographer Michael Saracen, BSC, shares with us the details of his work on the film Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Saracen is best known for his collaborations with director Alan Parker on films like Midnight Express, Fame, and Angel Heart. Dawn of the Planet of the Apes marks his first collaboration with director Matt Reeves. And now, on with the interview. Michael, in terms of its cinematography, did you and Reeves want to tie your film in with the first one, which was photographed by Andrew Lesney, ASC? Not really. I think that it's, you know, it was different director, different screenplay, different cinematographer, pretty much different everything apart from the fundamental characters in the film. And when Matt took over, I think the deal under which he did so was that it was to be his script, his everything. And we didn't really reference the film at all because it's an independent story. Do you know what I mean? The the links are there by virtue of apes, pretty much. And uh, that's it. And as you say in your, uh, you know, your sort of brief description of the story, that was our departure point. So we never referred to the previous film, at least Matt and I didn't. He said if I wanted to, I could have a look at it because I'd not seen it, and I did. And um, then we sort of moved on and did our own thing. I mean, the link, as I say, I mean, if you look at the history of the Apes films, there's been so many different directors, screenplays, stories, TV series, et cetera, et cetera. And each one, apart from the TV series, which I never saw either, has been pretty independent. You said you before that you wanted to do your own thing. What is that thing? Well, Matt, first of all, I was contacted by Matt. Could he send the script to me? The usual sort of way it's done. I read it. thought, this is interesting. Found out about Matt, who I'd heard of, but had not seen any of his work. Um, in tandem with that, he sent about 100, other than sending the screenplay, about 100, uh, 125 images. So that when we discussed uh, the film, we were talking about not abstracts, not interpretation of words, but an image. It might have been something from a film he'd shot that he liked, a film that I'd shot, a photograph, a painting, etc. So we had a really good departure point in terms of discussing the look for the film. And he would, as I say, uh, discuss sequences from various films, most of which I'd seen, some of which I'd shot, some of his, etc. So that made the whole process start from a very relatively elevated level. I don't mean elevated... In, in, in a grandiose way, but elevated in terms of, okay, that's what we think this sequence should look like, etc. And we discuss it and arrive at a, at a consensus. Yeah, and that, that worked from day one until literally I saw him last Friday night about midnight, just before I jumped on a plane to come to, um, uh, to, to, to New Zealand. And, you know, throughout, that, that endured. About the 125 images that you mentioned before, did all of these images have something in common? Well, pretty much. Um, I asked Matt why he chose me because, and he said that he knew the work that I'd done and he loved the aesthetic the, of the light. And once he sent through these other images, not other, the images after the screenplay arrived, all of a sudden I thought this is, you know, he's like a kindred spirit. 
really. It's his, I mean, outside of any ego things, he chose some scenes from, say, I don't know, Angel Heart and Angel's Ashes and maybe Potter, I can't remember, plus stuff from other movies, Bertolucci movies, a couple of American films. I don't remember them all. They're literally probably 120, 150 images. There were images I looked at and I thought, oh, I really like, oh, isn't that great? That's dark. That's cool. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And it fired my imagination and it really did. It really worked. And so once we met face to face and sat down and talked about stuff, we related it sometimes back to specific images, underlit, dark, single source light. Uh, yeah. And suggestion using light and shadow. I love shadow. Shadow for me is more important than light. Although, you know, light lack of create shadow but it was uh that was it so i think that he i mean he'd not been involved in the film too long before we started talking maybe a couple of months and these were things i think that were as essential to him the visuals of the film as essential as the story casting everything else what's the overall visual tone well he wanted to shoot in 2d so the aesthetic was a 2d aesthetic meaning, and then very low-key, quite dark. I mean, I'm, if I have any sort of reputation, it's probably to be, you know, stuff to be quite dark. Um, and if possible, dependent on the tests, once it was determined we had to shoot 3D, and we, we shot 3D, native 3D as it's called, how much, how close we could keep it to a t- 2D aesthetic in terms of depth of field, sharpness, uh, you know, using focus as an added sort of element to it. And so after not uh, hugely intensive tests, that's where we arrived at. And we broke quite a lot of rules uh, because I think 3D, what's this now, one and a half years ago, still was, it's not in its birth, but do you know what I mean? People are still discovering stuff. And and I never shot 3D. I mean, I shot half of gravity, but that was... uh, 2D post post uh, conformed, so uh, this is the first native 3D film I'd shot. So it was a learning uh, circle, a, a learning exercise for me, and in a way, being ignorant of certain things is quite helpful because you say, "Oh, well, that doesn't work. Or well, why not? Let's try this or that." And so we arrived at this very shallow uh, 3D uh, using slightly longer lenses than have been used, very 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 low light levels. Uh, using, as I say, focus. And then the third dimension, we used that when it was a bit deeper as an added element as well. Rather than have everything where half the time, you know, the action on the screen is on your lap and the audience. And I think it worked really well, really well. It seems that the less is more approach tends to be the more successful approach to filming good 3D. Absolutely. Actually, you put it perfectly, less is more. And in fact, I'm sure that's a term that Matt used, said, you know, let's suggest things rather than show them, which I love. That's why I like darkness. It's what an audience doesn't see or can partially see, then it feeds its imagination. So it it involves people more as well. Now, we're talking about the film prior to its release, so I've only got the studio's sort of basic synopsis. And, you know, there's a fragile peace, forces are pushing the humans and apes towards war. Can you elaborate any further on the film setting? Well, the story, I mean, basically the apes have their own camp, if you like, outside San Francisco. I guess around the Mount Tamalpais, up in the, in the sort of forested areas of Mount, uh, 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 you know, the other side of the Golden Gate. And then the humans are living in a failing city of San Francisco where nothing works, the last of which is they're running out of fuel, so they have no power, and without power, they're pretty, you know, they've had it. So the, 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 the 
human camp, as it's called, is a sort of rundown building where people sort of huddle together to, to exist. And then the apes, in contrast, have a very well-organized uh, hierarchical society with Caesar being the boss, sitting in his big sort of construction on top of this huge ape camp, which has been built out of tree trunks. It's massive. I mean, it's a massive set. I mean, the production designer did a phenomenal job. And uh, it's only when they go out looking for another, the humans go out looking for a, um, what do you call it, a, a, an old um, hydroelectric power station, maybe if they can get that going again, then that'll so, uh, solve their problems. The problem is that it happens to be on the ape territory and that's where all the fun starts happening. The story is set in San Francisco, but you shot the film in Vancouver and New Orleans. Right. We're in Vancouver for all of the ape stuff, the exteriors, the power plant, sorry, sorry the hydroelectric plant, the ape encampment, the wide shots, not all the detailed stuff. Basically to establish the forest, the mist, the lake, the hydroelectric power, the real Northern California feel. And then the humans have a sort of, the interaction, the first interaction between the humans and the apes in the forest on the apes territory, if you like, the sort of top of the hydroelectric plant, uh, details of the interiors of which we shot uh, in Louisiana. And that's pretty much it. Mostly exteriors, day exteriors, and the weather was perfect wet, misty, soft light, rain, and so on. Absolutely ideal. Um, Louisiana was another thing. I mean, that was the bulk of the rest of the film. Virtually no stage stuff. It was sets constructed within an old power plant, which had been closed down about, I don't know, 50 years ago. And then the ape camp itself was a massive set on the banks, on a car park outside a sort of closed-down Disneyland. We did have a couple of stages actually on an old NASA site, which has been some entrepreneurs taken over a few empty, well, just big spaces, and they used as film sets. But we did very little there, I mean, maybe a week in total. Was there any talk of actually shooting the film in the Bay Area? I These are decisions I'm not part of. Ideally, that would happen. So many, uh, so much is dictated by, uh, fine, by money, and... I, I think that Vancouver gives you some sort of, or British Columbia gives some sort of tax deal, and for sure Louisiana does. I mean, Louisiana is the worst place to shoot in a lot of ways for this film because we have the amount of cutting the sun out of this sort of semi-tropical sun, which is the antithesis of the light up in, uh, in the Bay Area, was, was a major undertaking. But it worked. I mean, the film was seamless, absolutely seamless. You would have no idea. Plus they did a few, uh, second unit did a few... Um, uh, doctored exteriors in San Francisco to give it some more credibility, but my, very minor part, very minor bits. Did you have to be careful of how you shot one location for another uh, in the sense that uh, the architecture might be different or have a particular kind of plant life? I don't know the forest there. I mean, I've been there hundreds of times, but I've never, I mean, I've driven over in the long Mount Tampapais and so on. And I guess... Area the, the the forested areas of the Northern California are similar to uh, Vancouver. I mean, it's all the Pacific Northwest. So, uh, and you'll accept that. I think you will. There's these big fir, fir forests and so on, where the uh, which has that grey, soft California light. And I think once you've established pretty much a wide shot, most of it's medium and close. Therefore, the public accept it. And it's intercut with stuff that we did in Louisiana as well. And it's, it is seamless. It really is. The major problem was matching light, and we managed to do that. Also, quite a lot of it's at night too, so that helps. Specifically, what kinds of challenges did you face with matching light? 
huge amounts of diffusion. I think one of the sets in the business district of uh, New Orleans was about, we took over like four city blocks. So we had the roads coming into like a big crossroads, but we had to close them off on each of those crossroads at the end of them. So it were like four, maybe even six city blocks. They were all dressed um, sort of like a ruined San Francisco and then uh, visual effects added um, above them. I mean, the sets were about as high as maybe 50 feet high, 60 feet high, 50, say. And then over the top of the human camp, we just had massive diffusion. I mean, literally, there must be hundreds of feet by hundreds of feet just keeping out the sun. And it enabled us to shoot, you know, and it was heavy diffusion too. It, and, and it sort of kept that soft quality of light that you find in, uh, in, in Northern California. That sounds a lot like what um, Dion Beebe did with Memoirs of a Geisha uh, or uh, Andrew Laszlo uh, in Streets of Fire with the big overhead diffusion or the blackouts. Absolutely. And it worked. It worked really well. I mean, it was, it was, it was occasionally we had a little bit of sun, but, and in fact, the major problem we had with sun, strange enough, was in Vancouver. One day we got one scene where it was bright, bright sun and we were in a little valley, so shadow on one side, but it sort of, it added to the tone in a strange way. So, you know, you had sort of soft, 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 grey, rainy light, then one day a little bit of sun, then soft, soft, soft again. So it gave it a little bit more of a, you know, character, I guess. In fact, we had no choice because <laughs> that's the reality of it. Did you have a specific idea about how the artificial light would look? Not really. More of that is probably to do with the destroyed state of a city because, in fact, it is post-apocalyptic and it's not really the future because, in fact, nothing's been made, nothing's been constructed. It literally is sort of preserving the status quo and as, the, as everything destroys, there's no jobs, there's less and less power, obviously there's less food, there's, there's less of everything. So it's like a, time is frozen, if you like, and then starts to disintegrate. Everything, the physical things start to disintegrate. So there's very little fuel for vehicles. I mean, they're all sort of 80s and 90s sort of pickup trucks. And, you know, literally people have run out of fuel. So you see cars rusting on the side of the road, pickup trucks, everything. I mean, it is a state of decay, almost total decay. And, uh, you know, the humans are making do as best they can. But in terms of light interpretation we made it look pretty gloomy because it is gloomy do you know what i mean it, it is and also because we needed to match the light that we all we'd established from the outset matt and i discussed it a lot along with the production designer and all all the sort of the sets the set dressing uh the, the wardrobe was pretty you know pretty basic what's an example of this gloomy look that you mentioned yeah, we, re we shot a scene a couple of, about three weeks ago because there was a slight change when the cut was sort of getting finalised and Matt wanted to switch the sort of um, dynamic, the good guy and the bad guy of the humans, uh, Gary Oldman and Jason Clark. So on a small stage at Fox, we reshot it. And this is literally a dialogue scene between uh, Jason and Gary. And that scene probably exemplifies everything we've just been talking about in terms of light and shadow. Uh, I can't be more specific than that because I, but it literally is, it's like two thirds of the way through the film and it's in this beaten up old sort of set, which is part of where Gary lives in the film. Can you be specific about how the scene was staged and lit? Um, their body language, you know, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Jason is standing there and his body language, he's sitting there looking a bit resigned. 
So in his body language is sort of, because you don't actually see him resigned in his face. It's his body language, sitting down, hunched shoulders. Gary comes up the stairs and they sort of confront one another and talk about stuff. And it's very underlit, very low key. It's a day scene, but very dark. And probably the body language says as much as the dialogue does. So it's that sort of light and shadow to communicate. I mean, probably possibly without dialogue, the scene would work not as well as it would with dialogue for sure, but do you know what I mean? Telling the story with images and then the dialogue enhances that. I mean, there's a lot of stuff because there's no electricity and there's a few, you know, oil lamps or candles here and there in the night stuff. We use moonlight, we recreated moonlight. There's a, uh, a human camp where there's firelight. I mean, it's pretty conventional in a lot of ways, but it's, it just adds to, I believe, well, I hope rather than believe, hope it adds to the drama of the story, the darkness of the story, because it's a pretty dark story. Did shooting in 3D affect the way that you lit the film? It's an enormously slow system. I mean, I spoke to a bunch of DPs who'd shot quite a lot of 3D, um, and a lot of them said, if anything can go wrong, it often does. It's really slow before you get an image and you can start working stuff out. So what we did to, uh, and I don't know if this is unique particularly, we had a leap, we had two, two sort of two crews working simultaneously. One would be setting up to shoot the scene once we're getting close to getting set up and ready to shoot. The next rig will be setting up for the following scene. So we saved as much setup time as we could and it worked pretty successfully. And we had to hump, I mean, up in uh, Vancouver, we are humping these bloody cameras hundreds and hundreds of yards you know, along very, very narrow, you know, literally two-person wide tracks through the, through the, uh, in the pissing rain, through the mud and everything else. And it was, it physically was quite difficult. And of course, there's so much electronics involved with 3D, you know, humidity is not great for that anyway. But despite a few hiccups in the beginning, it worked pretty well. But for sure, it's probably the slowest way of filming ever, ever invented. What camera and 3D system did you use? Well, we uh, once it was decided we were going native 3D. I didn't do definitive tests, but on Gravity, Chivo had used Alexas, and I really liked the Alexa. Uh, I like I've always liked that Araflex as a company, you know, for for even their film cameras, and always had a good rapport with them. So what I did was I started. I didn't really shoot. Although the M wasn't out when Gravity happened. But it was it came out about nine months or a year later. I shot some tests on it and I liked it. Then the, I had two choices of rigs. Well, there were more than two, but the two major ones were Cameron Pace and Threality. And I chose Threality for a combination of reasons, which are sort of irrelevant. And then lenses was the biggest thing for me. Now, when you're shooting native 3D, you need the lens. I mean, say a 50 millimeter lens, because you've got two lenses, two cameras, two lenses on each rig. You, one lens might be 49.5 millimeter, the other 50.2. On 3D, you can't have that, at least my understanding. You have to have them matching. And uh, in stills, I've always used Leica lenses on film and now digital. And I really like the both the aesthetic and also the rigor of how the lenses are made. And if you're shooting 2D, it's not a problem because, you know, you get lenses to match in terms of color and resolution and soft or hard or whatever, and you choose those. So I did these pretty definitive tests on um, the Leica lenses, the Summer Lux, and they were stunning, absolutely stunning. I love them. Also, and sorry, I forgot to mention this earlier on, we were after a film aesthetic. And a lot of people like digital, but we wanted, I mean, had we had time, we would have shot on film. We just didn't have time. Therefore, we needed something to get as close to film as possible. And I believe the combination of the Alexa 
the Leica Summerlux, and well, the rig is a mechanical means of shooting 3D, but that worked really well. And it was the first time it had been used, I think. So it was, it was pretty tough in the beginning to get everything to talk to one another, as they say, all the electronic components to, you know, say good morning and get on with it. But uh, it worked it worked brilliantly, absolutely brilliantly. Where did you rent your camera equipment from? Um, I've shot in the States quite a lot, and I sort of, I tended to work with a guy called Joe Dunton, um, who's an guy who's set up out in North Carolina. And this time I was recommended an outfit called Fletcher, uh, based out of Chicago, but also had a base in uh, Louisiana near New Orleans. And I met with them and I really liked them. This was a big film for them, really big. And they came up trumps. They really did. It was a very big film for them. And also there's very few of those lenses around. There's maybe 80 sets worldwide. And at times we were using like 10 of them. So, uh, but sh- they were brilliant. They've since been bought by VER and I think it's called, the company's called Cineverse now. But uh, the combination of everything worked well. And also the crew, you know, because for me, the important thing, what I do is telling a story with light camera moving composition. I'm not particularly uh, uh, technical. Therefore, you hire super smart people who know about that. And the crew were brilliant. I mean, I had a regular camera crew I'd worked with before. Then all the, you know, the DIT and the technical uh, 3D guys were fantastic. Did your camera crew already have a lot of experience with 3D capture? No, well, the camera guys had my ca- Alan Disler, uh, the operator had the key, the, well, the couple operators did, the focus pullers did, the then you have the I mean, you have the engineer, you have the rig tech, you have so many other people. I think the average crew is like 12 people, it used to be four or five. And they all do their thing. Most of it seems to be sitting looking at an Apple computer, but they're, they're essential. I mean, the thing is, I didn't, you know, I was the novice and I couldn't have a bunch of novices around me, but these guys are amazing. Their knowledge is, is really profound and really important. This is a huge visual effects film, um, not just for the reasons that we talked about before, but also for the ape characters, which were all done with motion capture. Uh, as well, the film is sort of, I don't know what the proportion of CGI to live action is. I mean, one of the nice things, in fact, of that sequence I just told you about between Gary Oldman and Jason Clarke is there's no CGI whatsoever. It was like proper filmmaking, as I called it, which is a bit unfair. But for me, the most, you know, there was no, no we just shot the scene and once the director's happy, we moved on to the next setup. That was it, no, no technical requirements. But the guys from Weta in New Zealand who'd done the previous film and are absolute masters at recreating this whole sort of technical CGI world, plus the actors like Andy and a couple of the others who play the the, the, the key character, ape characters, they are amazing at what they do. I mean, Jesus, I've never done anything even close to this before. And just to see how that whole process, enormously complex technically. But you get huge, I got huge help, as I did on Harry Potter actually, with these visual effects uh, supervisors who just have massive knowledge. They do. Do you know what I mean? In other words, they don't get involved in lighting. They don't get involved in uh, aesthetics or whatever. They just measure everything, capture everything, and then they go back to their whatever. They go back to New Zealand and start working. And so, you know, I, I will be talking with them on, on a sometimes an hourly basis, a daily basis, saying, how's this for you guys? And they would sometimes say, oh, the green screen's a bit bright or not bright enough or we need a bit more here. I didn't get too involved in that because I had enough to do with the live action side. But they would talk, you know, maybe to the gaffer and say they needed a bit more of somebody else. Because in the end, you know, the, 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 just my side of stuff is so full on. I mean, one of the things... For example, when you have, say, Andy Circus dressed up in his grey grey sort of onesie 
you know, with all the bits of stuff stuck on him and his helmet with flashing light on his face, is that light may not be the same light as I have for the scene. So occasionally I'd have to switch it off. And then if it's a scene with humans and uh, apes, Andy would do the scene and the other apes without their flashing lights on their face to capture their, uh, you know, what they were doing with their face, just so that was a lighting pass that literally was used. So they would use the... Um, how can I put it, the, 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 the facial capture light to get that, then use my film light to light the, the eventual um, image, if that makes sense. You can't have, you know, all the humans looking moody and half-lit and dark and an ape looking like they're in a supermarket. Do you know what I mean? It sort of uh, doesn't work, although occasionally you do see that on some films. But this one is seamless. It really is seamless. And the guys did a brilliant job. I mean, if I had any comments... And it's not a negative at all. It's part time and part financial. Is if I was doing a film like this again, I would want to be more involved in the uh, probably setting the style for the visual for the CGI lighting, which is a tough one because I, I went over to Wetter. I came out and I was here in December and January this uh, January this year, December last year, when the film was finished shooting. I went over to Wetter and had a chat with you know everybody about lighting and to look at scenes. And if they ever had any questions, just contacted me. But they did a brilliant job. Absolutely brilliant. Was Weta able to assist you with visualizing things that weren't physically in front of the camera? Well, interestingly enough, uh, had there been enough prep time, we would have had definitive uh, pre-visits and there was no time for that. So often we had to decide stuff on the day. And between uh, Dan Lemon, who was, a, it was his movie, and Eric Vinquist as his sidekick, they were really useful. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes I say, Jesus, do you, you know, uh, do you want me to shoot that background or are you going to put it in a green screen, recreate that forest? Because there's sun over there. And they say, I tell you what, we'll take some photographs of some forest in, in uh, uh, where you can maybe shoot some with second unit and we'll drop that in because that light on the hills in the background is not going to match what we've got in the foreground. And they often did that. And that was hugely useful. Yeah, because it, 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 you sort of become collaborators in a way. And if you don't, I think it often shows on films. Whereas here, it was a really collaborative process. And I think, you know, despite the horrendous hours we worked, that, that the film, as I said earlier, is seamless in that respect. What's an example of a scene where all of the digital and practical and photographic elements really come together in that seamless way? Well, I mean, at the risk of sounding uh, pleased with myself in the film, if it didn't throughout, it really shows. Do you know what I mean? In other words, if something doesn't work, you've got to make sure that it does work. I mean, I think some of the stuff in the human, I mean, there's a big battle scene. and uh, It was a combination of first unit, second unit, CGI. And it is, it's the battle scenes basically when the apes come into the city and start taking over. Because within the story, the humans, you've got a good guy, uh, uh, Jason Clark, a bad guy. Uh, Gary Oldman, you've got Caesar, who's a good guy, and you've got, what's his name, Cobra, the bad guy. So you don't only have the battles between humans and apes, you have them within each society. And it's manifested probably in a battle in the, uh, in the city when the apes come in and take over or try to take over. And I think there you have a combination of set, uh, 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 digital uh, set, or real set, digital set, Real lighting, digital lighting, real uh, visual, uh, not visual effects, special effects, fires and guns and stuff. And then and they work incredibly well. I couldn't believe it. The first time I saw it a couple of weeks ago, 
Um, Matt wouldn't let me see the film. I said, can I see the film? No. I said, come on. No, 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 I don't want you to. And actually he was dead right because I looked at it with totally fresh eyes when I started in the DI. And uh, it was a re- he was real smart, really smart. I was just curious because a bunch of other people had seen it and said, oh, you've got to see it. It looks amazing, even though it's unfinished, like Gary Oldman and others. But I think in answering your question, probably the battle scenes, only in as much as they're quite uh, powerful. I mean, there's a big uh, fight between the apes on a sort of superstructure of like a 60, 70-story building, which looks, you know, dangerous and scary and all the rest of it. And it starts off with... Um, uh, up in the sort of superstructure in the building, there's a fight and then a chase. And then the, it goes from night light where we had fixed lights. And then I suggested that they have some of those construction lights strung up on cable and the wind's blowing. So the lights sort of going from shadow to light as the wind blows the light, you know, those sort of uh, Chinese coolie shade things. And that helped add to the drama. And then the sort of sun, it's dawn and then sun, early sunrise for the end of the sequence. Yeah, they are, they are good. They really are. And, I mean, bearing in mind that we didn't have, um, you know, previsors to sort of figure stuff out, I think that sort of was a real challenge. And I think for everybody, not just for me, trying to figure out if you're filming uh, guys on the ground level and you've got 80 stories of building above you, what would how would that affect the light, you know, with construction lights on it? What did you have instead of previs? Well, we had storyboards and uh, it was, you know, the, I think the, the visual effects boys had a, had a pretty good idea of what was going on. But, for example, I remember them, me, Matt, and the production designer saying, now, is this whole place going to be on fire? Is fire the main light source? And then I said, well, the problem with fire is, one, we can't do it. Two, we don't really know how do we recreate the shadows from fire. Is it front fire? Crosslit backlight. I said, I think we're building a bit of a uh, a cross for ourselves. You know, making a bit of a making it tough for ourselves. And also, why don't we use fire to enhance things dramatically rather than have it throughout? So it becomes a sort of to add a punctuation point, if you like, or a, or a, to to flare up. And I think that was the right decision. And that was just a stab in the dark. That was not based on any looking at drawings and plans and all the rest of it. But it was an ev- evolutionary process, and it worked really well. And one another thing, for example, is when we looked at the uh, the fur or the hair of the apes, it started to look a little bit flat at times. And I, we said, well, why not have it look wet or a bit greasy? And the change in that was huge. It gave it a much more real feel to the apes. And Jesus, they are incredible. I mean, how they do that, I don't have a clue. But Were there any practical ape suits on set? Not at all. I, th- I think because they had the, done the previous film, they had pretty good what's the word, skills at developing the uh, everything, the movement, the quality of the fur, because, you know, they're not all the same. They're not all sort of got, you know, pink faces and black fur. There's some with patchy skin. There's some with lost a, lost a bit of fur. Some of them are bigger, some are big. Well, there's as much difference as there is in human beings. The apes have that as well. Maybe not to our eyes, but in this film for sure. And in reality. So, uh, no, their work was incredible. The first few things I saw... Uh, I was really impressed. And the movements and trees and all that stuff. I mean, those guys are geniuses. They really are. What was your uh, plan for the color grade? Well, I didn't see the whole film because literally until last, today is what, my third, so say it's your, in Los Angeles, it's Wednesday. Stuff was still coming through from wetter last Thursday. So 
And I never saw the whole film because the whole sequence was with what they call placemakers in them, just part finished sequences. So what I did, I started timing the film with sequences that were completed. And sometimes it might be reel one, then a bit of reel three, then part of reel five, then back to reel two. And overnight stuff would come in from Weta, would be cut into the film and I would see new stuff. It might be, you know, an enhanced performance. It might be slight change lighting. It might be, yeah, the quality of the fur on a uh, ape. It might be uh, a bit of movement somewhere. I know Matt wasn't too happy with movements of some uh, reindeer in the film and so on. And these guys must have been working. To, I mean, they had like 800 people working on it down at Weta. Literally new stuff coming in uh, overnight. So I really only saw the whole film in 3D last Thursday. No, I'd seen it in 2D the day before, maybe a week ago. So eight days ago. And then the following day, we went to a little preview theatre, actually quite a big preview theatre at Fox called the Zanuck, and I saw it in 3D. And then went back and changed a few things because the other thing you have to realise is not all screens and cinemas have the same amount of reflectance. So it's trying to make it dark enough so on the good average screen it looks good. And on the good screen, it doesn't look too much too bright. So we arrived at a happy medium there. Are you at all concerned that the experience will vary from audience to audience, that one might not see it the way that you intended? Yeah, and I mean, of course, the studio and the marketing people want everybody to see everything all the time, as, as is natural. But my thing is, how do we do it uh, and keep the essence, the, the sort of aesthetic of the film? And the reason that I got this lovely email from uh, Matt a couple of hours ago was to say he'd finally seen the film in the Zanuck Theatre. He told me he lightened up a couple of things because I veered towards the darker side and he just thought that it was maybe a touch dark. Because also you do get to know the film really well so you know what's going to happen. You have to look at it with the eyes of somebody who's going to see it once. You know what I mean? And, that, and, and get everything. I guess they'd, everybody would love it if they went to see the film twice, but, you know... I think tentpole movies don't really uh, require that. It sounds like you and Matt have been on the same page since the beginning. Well, we, I mean, I must say, Matt, of all the directors, I haven't worked with that many directors, but of all the directors I've worked with, from the first Skype conversation to the last, literally, when I gave him a hug and said goodbye about 2 o'clock in the morning a few days ago, he's the same person. He really is a good man. And, I mean, he's, he's just, he just has a quality about him. I don't know what it is. It doesn't matter. And he never occasionally, you know, we, we never argued. We, you know, DPs and directors often can get quite quite passionate about things, often through fatigue or misunderstandings or whatever. And with Matt, it was a pretty very seamless operation. There was a, a lot of mutual respect, and I must say, I love that. It does make for the creative process to be as you know as as as, 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 as successful as possible, or as smooth as possible. And I think that the shared aesthetic. You know, he he was, if there was something he thought was a bit light or dark, he'd say so. And I'd say, well, listen, let's shoot it like that, knowing we can bring it up a little bit. What I don't want to do is make it too light and then have a real problem bringing it down. He'd say, fine, okay. So, uh, and occasionally he'd be right. You know, I'd say, Jesus, actually, you're right. Now I look at it, it should be a bit lighter. I'll just lighten this up a tiny bit. And uh, that was good. That was cinematographer Michael Saracen, BSC, talking about his work on the film Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Thanks for listening. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. 
you can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography. 